BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. As always, I am Tom Butler. I'm joined by Brendan Duffy and Mr. Tom Wheatley. Hello. Another action-packed episode for you coming up. This is a, a sort of a standard episode for us. Nice to be back in the usual formula. We'll be talking about six different people from the world of the James Bond films, all under the letter C. Um, beginning with a, a composer, and then we've got a visual, visual effects supervisor. Uh, quite an interesting character, Mr. John Cork. Then Caroline Cossey, a second unit director, Derek Cracknell. And then finally... And the editor of the new James Bond film, which we haven't seen yet, but um, No Time to Die, Mr. Tom Cross. So quite an interesting and diverse episode, guys. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Spanning uh, all the eras of Bond as well, really. Yeah, oh, pretty really? much. Pretty much. I thought about that, yeah. So, yes. Um, thank you for listening and on with the show. C is for Conti, Bill Conti. Bill Conti is a uh, film composer, a musician, conductor. He's quite prolific, actually. Um, I, I didn't realise after before reading about him, but um, 
He's written like countless film scores. He's he's basically written hundreds of scores. He was born in 1942. I guess he is most famous for his work on the Rocky films. You guys are familiar with those films, yeah. I take it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Big time. So he did um, Rocky, the original Rocky film, and also um, four of its sequels up to and including Rocky Balboa. Uh, other film scores that he wrote include Private Benjamin. You know that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great film. The Karate. 80s. The, the Karate Kid and all of its sequels, uh, the Right Stuff, uh, which is one of my favourite films ever. That's the 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 space race film um, that earned Bill Conti an Academy Award for Best Original Score. He also did Masters of the Universe. That's the He-Man movie <laughs> with Dolph Lundgren. Interesting, you should say that. My mum texted me yesterday and she says it's on TV, <laughs> and I said, "Why are you telling me that?" <laughs> Apparently, I used to like it. Um, that's good though. Good soundtrack. Yeah, uh, Spy Hard. Interesting that that's a, a, a spy spoof film yeah. with Leslie Nielsen, mm. and also interestingly the Thomas Crown Affair remake with Pierce Brosnan. Mm. So, mm. Um, but the reason that we're speaking about him today on the James Bond Eight Said podcast is because he wrote the score for For Your Eyes Only, and he also was nominated for a Best Original Song that year for his song For Your Eyes Only. Yeah, basically, uh, as I mentioned there, he, he was nominated for three Academy Awards or has been so far. One, he won the Best Original Score for Right Stuff. He also was um, nominated for Best Song for For Your Eyes Only and also for the song Gonna Fly Now from the Rocky films, oh. which I think is the main theme song. Yeah, yes. um, yeah. yeah, which when you look at it on IMDb has been used in so many things. It's ridiculous. So when you look at Bill Conti's IMDb, it's so confusing because it's all going to fly now being used in uh, just tons of stuff. Yeah, Every film with a montage, basically. Basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just the shorthand for <laughs> montage, isn't it? Uh, interestingly, he also did the TV theme tunes for Good Morning America, World News Tonight and Dynasty. So I thought that was quite interesting. And also a little um, honour for Bill Conti as well, something he's well known for, is for being the musical director at the Academy Awards at the Oscars. He has done it a record 19 times, first in wow. 1981 and then all the way up to 2001. So, yeah, that's quite interesting. So let's have a quick look at Bill Conti and who he is, where he comes from. So he's an Italian-American he was born in Providence, Rhode Island, son of Lucetta and William. He graduated from North Miami High School in 1959. Blah, blah, blah. Yada, yada, yada. Um, he gained, uh, studied and gained honours at the Juilliard School of Music. Obviously, that's quite a famous um, a school for music, the Juilliard. So his parents were both musicians. And this is where he says he gets his love for music from. He said, I grew up playing the piano. My father and grandfather were both musicians. We would often go to the opera rather to the mo- rather than to the movies. And I just, I loved the opera, the concert halls. That's what drew me into the music. And he actually went to college on a, on a scholarship for playing the bassoon. But at that point, he said he had no dreams of being an opera composer in a contemporary world. He said, you can write opera today in the world. You can, but you might want to have to do other things to make a living so he's basically saying you can't make money from being an opera writer but he realized that you know you could make money from being writing music um for for tv and film so that's what he ended up going into his first composing credit comes uh, in 1969 on a film called a candidate for killing which is an italian film and it starred john richardson and anita ekberg but not long after that, he got his big breakthrough with Rocky, which was released in 1976. And it's like that music on that film is iconic, right? 
Ah, um, yeah, probably one of the most iconic soundtracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say that absolutely. So he's he was. So this this is a quote from him in an interview with Hey You Guys, which he did for the 40th anniversary of Rocky. He said, "I was living in Rome, came back in 1973, and came to the West Coast." Then I did a film in 1974 called Harry and Tonto. Then I did Next Stop Greenwich Village. And the film editor in Harry and Tonto then went on to do the uh, the Rocky movie in 1975. They finished it in 1976 and said he wanted me to meet the director. So I did. And that's how I got the job. So then he went and met with the director. I wish I remembered the name now. Is it John Avildsen who did Rocky? One of you look yeah. that up while I continue. Um, the Rocky director. Anyway. But actually, interestingly, uh, the director offered it to two other people before um, offering it to Bill Conti. So you can see he was sort of low down on the on the choice, and that's probably how he got his big break here. It is John Avildsen. He said that two... It was John Avildsen, there we go. So two people before me had turned down this job of writing the film score to a movie that didn't cost a million dollars. There was just no money for anyone. He was offered $25,000 as a package to write the music, and that had to pay for everything. So the music, the paper, the musicians, the studios, the tape. And then he would just get what was left from that as his personal <sighs> fee. So this is a low, low, mm. low budget film. So you can see why people turned it down, right? He said that other composers just thought, I just don't want to take that chance. Anyway, he did do Rocky. Uh, and actually the most famous music is from that is, is the montage music that we talked about. And it comes uh, quite late in the film and... You know, it was just instantly iconic, that music. Um, he remembers going to see the film with Sly Stallone uh, and the producers. And they came into the cinema quite late at this test screening. And this is this is a quote from, from Bill Conti. He said, we were at the back of the theatre. We sat down. We didn't have the vibe of the room at this point. We were just sitting there. So then up comes the 10th reel, which is the training montage. montage and when that finished... The entire audience jumped up and was going crazy. And the only people in the house that were seated still were us, <laughs> which is quite a great little anecdote, mm. I think. So, yeah, um, that theme, uh, Gonna Fly Now, earned him his first Oscar nomination and really just set him on his path then. he, he Just can, just to finish off on Rocky, he then scored Rocky 2, 3, 5. He didn't do number 4. Um, and then he did uh, Rocky Balboa and then someone else has taken over to do the Creed films. So, um, yeah. Quite a big, uh, a big association for Bill Conti there. So let's fast forward to For Your Eyes Only. So at this period, John Barry, who we talked about way back in one of the very first episodes, the longtime James Bond composer, wasn't available to do the film because he was living in tax exile, which comes up a lot in the sort of like late 70s and early 80s. So he couldn't do the film. Now, Bill Conti actually did a really great interview with James Bond Radio, which is which is actually worth a listen. And he said that he told them that basically his agent called him, told him that the Bond producers wanted to meet him for lunch. Um, so he was like, yeah, OK, then he lives in L.A. And he was like, oh, no, no, it's in, in England. So then he had to fly from L.A. to Heathrow to meet Cubby. And they basically had lunch and then he flew back again. <laughs> he read the script on the plane back and uh, turned out that John, Bar- John Barry had actually recommended that Bill Conti do the gig. So after the lunch, he got the gig. Cubby wanted him to come to London to write the score, but Conti really just wanted to stay in LA and write it because he had his family there, his kids there. Cubby just said, just bring the whole family. So Cubby basically played for Bill Conti and his family and their tutor to live in London for three months. And he then Conti then worked really closely with John Glenn to write the score because John Glenn was, was making his direct, directing debut with this one. 
The score itself was recorded at CTS in Wembley. That's a, a, a studio that's no longer there, unfortunately. Um, and the score, I don't know if you've listened to it recently, but it's it's a bit more updated. It's sort of Bond moving into the 80s. There's more brass, there's more synthesizers. It's quite an interesting score. Talking about writing the score, he said the relationship is Baroque. He said it's like Bach writing music for mass. Anything that the producer or director wanted, I just had to write the music for. Um, but he also said there's no restrictions when writing a Bond score. He was pleased, free to do as he pleased. And the only thing that Cubby directed him was to say that when jo- James Bond leaps into action, just use the Monty Norman theme. That was it. Simple. Everything else he could do as he wanted. And interesting, it's quite funny. You know, the, in the film, there's a Citroen when he's in the Citroen 2CV and he has that chase. Yep. Cubby's grand idea for this was to, for Bill Conti to write a country and western theme for the chase. <laughs> Like with cowboys, like strings and violins mm. and stuff. Bill Conti did it and he said it was glorious, but so wrong. And they, after listening to it, Cubby decided that, you know, yeah, it shouldn't be like that at all. So that was cut. I'd love to hear yeah, that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and then Conti obviously wrote the, theme, wrote the theme song that was performed by Sheena Easton. There was a song originally recorded by Blondie that was rejected by um, the producers. So Debbie Harry... She said that they basically just wanted her to sing the track, and the rumor is is that it was put. There was a disagreement between whether they would appear on the soundtrack as Blondie or as Debbie Harry. Cubby only wanted Debbie Harry. They said they'd only record it if they were could appear as Blondie. But um, so but that's the rumor. Mm. I don't know if it's true. Anyway, their song actually appears on a Blondie album later, so you can listen to that as well. Bill Conti was thrilled to be writing the song. He said the song was not contractual, um, so he was just absolutely over the moon to be able to write the theme song for it. Um, Originally, Bill Conti had asked Barbara Streisand to write a song for Donna Summer to sing, and that was where they were moving along with it. But then United Artists insisted they use Sheena Easton instead. Mm. Um, She was really riding high in the charts with a song called Morning Train 9 to 5. And I think they just wanted to get someone that was really on trend, so that's what they did. It's a great song. Yeah. Well, my um, favourite of the latter um, Bond songs. For Your Eyes Only, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic, isn't it? Mm. Um, interestingly, she, um, Sheena Easton brought in her own songwriter, a guy called Mick Leeson, um, who uh, helped her and, uh, and uh, sorry, and then Bill and Mick wrote this song together. Another song written by Mick Leeson is a good one for you. Would I Lie to You by Charles and Eddie. So. Ah, wow. <laughs> Didn't think that was going to crop up in this podcast. Charles and Eddie, yeah. So they they recorded a three minute demo of the song and they took it um, to Cubby. Bill Conti took it to Cubby to play it to him and say, "Here's the theme song." But before he did that, he was having lunch. Bill Conti was having lunch with Morris Binder, uh, probably at Pinewood Studios in the cafe there. And Morris Binder said to him, uh, "Bill Conti, he loves it when the t- song title comes up with the film title." And obviously, the film title always comes up right at the very start of the song. But the song, the, the version that they'd written, that the words for your eyes only only appeared at the end of the song. So Bill Conti basically panicked, scrapped <laughs> that whole song and went back to Mick and said, we've got to have for your eyes only at the very start of the song. And that was it. And they changed it. So there you go. Yeah. So Sheena Easton actually then became the first singer to appear in the title credits. I think we talked about that when we did Morris Binder. And when it was nominated for an Oscar, the song for your eyes only uh, was re- was performed at the Oscars. I don't know if you've seen this video, uh, but Bill Conti was basically conducting the orchestra because he was um, the compo- the conductor at the time. 
And there's a staged performance of the song with Richard Keel and Harold Sakata on stage. And it was this really elaborate dance number. Um, it's very weird. But that song lost out the Oscar to Arthur's theme from the film Arthur, written by Burt, Burt Bacharach. But I think we can all agree which is the more um, <laughs> everlasting song. Yeah, well, I, so, I couldn't even, yeah. I don't even know what the, the Arthur one sounds like. Arthur, be- best that you can do from Arthur. Yeah, right. I, I wouldn't be able to hum that one. So just to wrap things up, Conti said, it's nice to work on a project where no one is nervous, which is always surprising. There aren't that many. Bond is like that. They just know what they're doing. They're not nervous and they've got the loot to do it. So that's Bill Conti. Just did one score for James Bond, but uh, quite an interesting one for your Mm -hmm. eyes only. C is for Corbold. Chris Corbold. Christopher Charles Corbold. I mean, he's got all the C's in there, so he really is. He definitely fits in this episode. Uh, he's born in 1958 and he's a special effects coordinator. Um, he's worked on a lot of blockbuster films, uh, which we'll, which I'll talk about. And also 15 James Bond films he's been involved with. So wow, he he is up there. So in regards to this, I'm gonna I'm gonna give like a brief overview because he's gonna get some heavy coverage. He's he's in over half of the films that we're gonna do specials on, and because of the the role that he does. He is heavily involved in shaping the way the films turn out. So, so just touch upon his early career to begin with. And he was in his in his teen years, and he was doing a bit of a summer job on the rock musical Tommy. Uh, I've not seen it. Have either of you seen it? Yeah, it's a great film. Pinball Wizard, isn't it? So his uncle Colin Chilvers was doing the floor effects. So that's how that's how he got his in into into movies and he he did that and he said after that I realized special effects was something I wanted to do all the time. So his his way in was he started a job at Effects Associates and they're based at Pinewood Studios. He said once there I was apprenticed to a number of veterans and set to various tasks. I might be shaping something on a lathe one day then helping build a specially engineered rig the next so with that you know hanging around pinewood studios is a is a great place to get involved with bond so he became a trainee on 1977's the spy who loved me so again this is something that the spy who loved me does seem to be that melting pot of everyone has worked on the spy who loved me that that sort of is it they just have more people working on that (laughs) film than any other bond film so just by pure chance, there was everyone was involved. <laughs> I guess so. It must be. I mean, the size of the set as well, that probably demanded more people. Yeah. So he also um, devised the ski poles that turned into guns. So he was in charge of sort of working out how they worked and what they looked like. And yeah, since then, he's gone on to work on every Eon made Bond film, apart from Octopussy. It's the only one he didn't do. Amazing. So he was sort of taken, taken under under the wing of Derek Meddings, who we'll, we will cover, but we have mentioned in past episodes, for his, known for his miniatures and his, his effects. And also uh, John Richardson, who I'm not sure we have mentioned John Richardson, but um, I assume he will crop up as well, who also worked in the effects department. And he says, on Moonraker, there were lots of interesting jobs for John. Bond's boat required the addition of a hang glider that deployed from the roof, Plus, there were mines that launched out the back. Decades later, when I attended the London Museum Bond in Motion exhibit, I found it rather funny that looking at this boat again, I could see all the pieces of welding that I'd done on it. 
So um, it'd be quite cool to see your work years and years and years later in a, in a different mm. setting. Did you see that exhibition? No, I didn't. And now it's it's no oh, more, is it? Did you, Wheatley? Was it? Where was it? It was just in Covent Garden, just on the edge of Covent Garden. No, I didn't see that one. I saw that one with you, which was in Farringdon, but not this one. The, at the Barbican, yeah. No, it was fantastic, Bond in Motion. Yeah, real shame that they've uh, not doing it there anymore. But um, yeah, it was a great... Uh, Great for vehicles and, and, and little pops. Yeah, hopefully and stuff. it finds another home. So also, you know, the opening scene of For Your Eyes Only, uh, which we have again discussed because it's got the character that's supposed to be Blofeld in it with the, the helicopter going through the building. So that was that was all relied on the sort of magic that Chris Corbold creates. They basically, they built the helicopter that could be operated using an arm. So it was like, sitting on a, on a hydraulic arm and he says uh, that attached to the track and then we could give the appearance that Bond was actually within the full aircraft at this location so um, it is a set piece that does look, look great and again that's probably because they're using the real the real deal but just sort of with a bit of trickery mm. as his career's gone on his effects have become bigger, grander, uh, the budgets have become bigger as well and the technology has been there for him to, to be able to break out and do bigger things other works that he has done just leaving bond for a second um so he worked on batman begins and he created the batmobile so it was he didn't design it so it was designed he was shown a model and christopher lonan asked him can you build this full size and he said yep there's gonna have to be some compromises (laughs) made uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, he said there was no front axle, so I had to change that. And then the challenge, so he was challenged to get it travelling 50 miles an hour. And in the end, him and his team got it up to 100 miles per, miles per hour. Wow. And then when the vi- vehicle does those, you know, those big, the big twisting jumps and the lurches, it was able to do that 30 times safely without damage. So it was actually doing those, wow. those stunts, which is absolutely incredible so then he he continued to work with christopher nolan he worked on the dark knight and um it was one of his ambitions to destroy a massive building and this is another iconic scene one of the most iconic scenes in the dark knight is the hospital getting destroyed with the joker walking away and that was yeah that's chris corbold that um masterminded that Uh, and he said we had a very narrow window in which to shoot that one there was an industrial railway line 200 yards behind the hospital and under no circumstances were they going to stop their trains. So we we couldn't wait for ideal weather conditions. Even so, I'd always wanted to blow up a building and Chris afforded me that luxury. And it's a set piece that, that really does pay off. But imagine getting that wrong. You've really only got one <laughs> chance of that. And yet another iconic scene. He worked with Chris Nolan again on Inception and the you know the hotel room where gravity is distorted. So that is, yes, that's all yeah. down to Chris Corbold. He, he worked with uh, electricians to make sure that room could rotate. It was rotating at six uh, spins per minute. Um, so all that action that they're shot, that is actually happening. That's, that's not CGI. It's actually happening in front of the camera. He said the action takes place in a 10-foot-wide corridor running 30 feet in length. And he, he goes on to explain how he collaborated with... With the people that that helped make it happen, but yeah, that's another incredible feat that wouldn't look the same if it was CGI, would it? I I was gonna ask this. It it, it must be weird for a, a visual effects supervisor who's who's 
been in the game for such a long time because visual effects in you know the 70s or whatever very different mm. from what they are now but it sounds like he's, he's still sticking to his guns and, and, and doing visual effects as you know as real objects. But I wonder what it was like to work on Die Another Day because he worked on yeah, that as well, didn't he? Yeah, but he did the Ice Palace, you know, the um, when that comes crumbling down. Ah. And that is another really great set piece. And that was done yeah. for real. So, so He's yeah. working the, with the right filmmakers, isn't he? Because Christopher Nolan is famous for work doing everything practically. Yeah. The Bond people do their stuff practically yeah. as well. So. Even in films such as yeah. Die Another Day, which was laden with CGI, it still had those set pieces that were done for real. Um, so it's still giving yeah. him the, that opportunity to come up with, with mm. stuff. So then, beginning with Skyfall, he was added the title of second unit director. So the part where the helicopter crashes into Skyfall... That is directed by him and and devised by him as well and and his team. He said, I wanted to try this for a while and Sam Mendes trusted me enough to let me shoot the helicopter attack on Skyfall Manor along with various blowings up. To have control over filming these action scenes is something I quite honestly adore. I just love it. Achieving the vision of the first unit director and hearing him say, that's exactly what I was looking for, tells me I've done my job. So that, I mean, you, you would never think that's not shot by... Uh, somebody he's directed before so he's obviously knows his stuff and he's he's taken everything on board the people he's worked with you know he's worked with some great yeah. directors hasn't he and he's been picking stuff up stuff up on the way so then he worked with Sam Mendes again on Spectre and the explosion of Blofeld's uh, house at the end his house <laughs> his lair his house. desert lair his lair <laughs> Is uh, is in the? It went into the Guinness. His cottage <laughs> went into the Guinness World Records. Yes, biggest explosion. Big, yeah, biggest pyrotechnic, pyrotechnic explosion. Yeah, and he said it's it's very much a matter of figuring figuring out every aspect in advance. We'll do five or ten, sometimes even twenty tests beforehand. Seventy five percent of our job is testing, not just to make sure we get the look right. A factor that is also dependent on the weather, as the biggest blasts look more colourful when shot in overcast conditions. So it adds another factor of things that you've, you've really got to get in this, this right. But I wonder how they test something that huge. That's, you know... Yeah. Surely you can only blow something up once. Exactly, yeah. You haven't got 20, 20 <laughs> uh, terraced houses to blow up, have you? Cottages. <laughs> cottages. Uh, but he does talk about CGI. Um, and he said back in the early days of CGI, people said everything that would would go that route, leaving us physical effect guys with only a few few years left. But in the interim, it seems we found a happy balance between special effects and CG. The ultimate goal remains to make something spectacular. So I believe in using whatever combination of tools that work best to create that illusion. And if it means CGI for one particular aspect and practical for another then by all means, use them in concert, use them all. Uh, and we covered it a couple of episodes ago. Casino Royale is a perfect example of that, where they bring the Venetian house down, is a perfect fusion of CG and physical effects. Uh, yeah, when yeah. you watch the DVD extras, Corbold figures quite heavily yeah. in that section, yeah, doesn't he? That, yeah, that was his little project. And it's absolutely stunning, isn't it? We've, we've talked about how people think mm. that's real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely brilliant. So he, he won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects for his work on Inception. Uh, his brothers are special effects supervisors, Neil and Paul Corbold. So runs in the family. 
And he has worked on four franchises, four huge franchises, James Bond, Superman, Batman and Star Wars. That's, wow. That's some uh, resume there, isn't it? Uh, so just uh, just Absolutely. run through a couple that he's... So he's done Superman 2 and Superman 3, where he was sort of... That's where he's still plying his trades. That's early 80s. Life Force, Alien 3. Is it Alien 3? Oh. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, Interview with the Vampire. Classic. And then the 90s is very Bond orientated with the mummy wedged in there in 1999. Nice. Nice. Um, and then similar sort of, you know, if he's doing effects and stuff, I guess, with uh, Tomb Raider, the the 2000, early 2000s, both of the Tomb Raiders he's done there. Daniel, working with Daniel working Craig. With Daniel Craig, yeah. And then uh, the Batman trilogy, uh, Inception, John Carter, which, uh, of Mars. Of Mars, yeah. <laughs> I, I've actually seen that. I think I saw that in the cinema. That's a, that's a couple of hours I'm never going to get back. Uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens, which he was nominated uh, for Best, Best Visual Effects Academy Award. And he also came back for The Last Jedi mm. and was second. So again, he's second unit director on Christopher Robin on a few scenes, which is uh, it's a very different uh, style of film. But, uh, Bit of a left yeah. turn, yeah. Uh, and also worked on the rhythm section which i think we covered in barbara broccoli episode because that's, that's produced an eon by film, eon isn't it? blake lively yes yeah. yeah so he was special effects supervisor on that as well and then of course upcoming we have no time to die which he was the special effects supervisor on that and doctor strange in the multiverse of madness in Ooh. 2022 mm. that's, be interesting. that's shooting in the uk isn't it yeah. so that makes sense so it's it's a fantastic career and what he does, I think, is increasingly important, I would say, in, you know, movie audiences are getting fed up of CGI. I mean, because I don't know if we're getting wise to it, but we can see when something's CGI, it just doesn't feel natural. So it's never never more so important that we still have the people like Chris Corbold. Yeah, just an amazing visual mm-hmm. engineer, isn't he? Just yeah. like being able to turn a director or, or screenwriter's vision into reality that looks real on screen like just all of those things that you talked about they're just great the films that you would say this is a great example of practical visual effects maybe not the mummy but, um... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's that's chris corbold who we will talk about very very much more So this next one is an interesting one because hopefully we're going to be getting him on at some point. So uh, I'm actually going to probably skip a few of the details because we probably want to ask him those if we get a chance to actually speak to him in person. But um, C is for Cork, John Cork. Now, John Cork is somebody who is quite heavily associated with Bond in, in a lot of ways and not in ways that you'd probably think. He's not kind of your standard Bond writer or actor or anything like that. Um, he's an author, he's a screenwriter, he's a documentary filmmaker, and he's a producer. And he's important to Bond for a, a number of reasons, which I'll go into now. But at the top of the list, just to kind of phrase it up so you get an idea of who, who he is and what, what he's really done for it, is um, he he's a producer who's been giving quite a lot of access to Eon's archives. And because of that, he's created loads of documentaries across... Um, if you've ever watched, and I know you two have, this is more for the listeners, if you've ever watched any of the James Bond DVD, uh, Blu-ray documentaries, he's one of the guys who pulls them together. So he's done a lot of those. He appears um, in a lot of them as well. 
Yeah, yeah, he's um, yeah, it's a a mass. He's, he's done a load of work on that. So um, yeah, and uh, I was chatting to Brendan earlier about these actually, and there's, there's some fantastic documentaries that that, that he's pulled together. Um, but he's also a screenwriter, so he's worked on a, a few products, and um, he's he's never written for Bond, but he did become involved at at one point of writing a, a for a Bond film, uh, which I'll talk about in a bit. Um, he's also, he used to publish a, a Bond fanzine called GoldenEye, which was really popular up until, I think it was to the late 90s. Um, and then uh, he also, interestingly, I didn't know this, he worked on Seen It, the DVD game. Oh, nice. Um, Played that many times. Quiz questions. But when, when you know a lot about... Uh, um, John, you'd probably realise that if there's a man to go to to come up with trivia questions on Bond, he's probably going to be able to come up with quite a few of them. <laughs> so he's, uh, as you can guess, he's a pretty big Bond fan. Bond fan probably doesn't even cover it. Yeah, he's worked on loads of different um, projects for associated with Bond and he's done a lot of books as well with a guy called Bruce Scavalli and he's done loads of documentaries, as we said, for all these DVD and Blu-ray uh, and streaming platforms for the Bond series. He has worked on various Bond biographies with um, Scavalli, as well as some more detailed books, which include James Bond, The Legacy, which is the the history of James Bond, which is absolutely fantastic. Book. I know both of you have it's read brilliant. that book in detail, yeah, but yeah. it's really good. It's I mean, you we go through quite a lot of Bond books in researching this, and a lot of them really just, they're like simple encyclopedias of you know each Bond film, each actor, all those kind of things. But this really is it. it from the from the outside of it, it looks like another encyclopedia. But it's really like a start to finish. I say finish, start to up until the point where you finish writing it. Story of Bond right from the beginning and, and the, how important and, it is. Yeah, and its historical context with the times that are going on at the at the yeah. moment. I think it really it's really good at placing it in its moment in history. Yes, um, and that's that's down to to John because John has lived Bond th- throughout the years, and he knew he just understood who, how it's related to all pop culture and 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 mainstream culture and all these things. So the book kind of delves into how Bond has been affected by mainstream culture and the world around it, and how it has affected it in in turn as well. So it's a really good book and well worth well worth having a look through. We actually talk about it in the I think it's the Brosnan episode we talk about because it's quite a big big uh, feature in there about it he also wrote a book called Bond Girls Are Forever about the women of James Bond uh, who he did with uh, Mariam Darbo which I haven't actually read have either of you guys read that one? no no um, that, so that's a one to add to the list uh, and he also worked um, with Colin Stutz on the James Bond Encyclopedia which mm-hmm. is a big encyclopedia um, for Bond fans it's it's kind of the go-to or one of the go-to ones um, gets regularly updated the information about it Sorry, I said it gets regularly updated and reissued. Yeah, it's yeah, and and as as we know, we like them to be regularly updated on the on the podcast because some of them aren't, <laughs> and it, we don't we don't get up to date facts. He's also other things as well. Is he he worked on the Ultimate James Bond uh, and Interactive Dossier, which is a CD ROM for the MGM Interactive. Yes, get a hold of that. You've got um, a CD ROM drive, have you? <laughs> well, I, I need to buy one, don't I? I'm telling you. <laughs> Need to get hold of one. So that's that's kind of like an overview of all of the Bond stuff that he's been involved with. But I, I mentioned earlier there about writing for the Bond films. This is an interesting one. It was around Bond 17. So Bond 17 at the time would have been the third Timothy Dalton film. And John John Cork, uh, he had... And I have to be careful if we do um, 
actually meet John to get some of this right. So I'm going to gloss over this and I'm not going to go into too much detail. <laughs> but um, he did work um, as a writer or was part of the writing team um, who were working on Bond 17 or the, a follow-up Bond film for, for Dalton. None of his work actually got used and he goes into quite a lot of detail about that in, in some interviews online. But from that work he did, that kind of led on to a lot of other projects from from the Bond series. And here's a quote from him when he's talking about being involved in that. I never worked out a story, but I felt like I got along very well with Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilton. It was a wonderful experience. I have tremendous admiration for the writers who hammer out a great filmable Bond story. I was cut out for different things. And then in 1999, he became involved with Dan Jack on the DVD releases. And he'd previously worked on the laser discs for Goldfinger, Thunderball and Goldeneye. There's loads of other stuff he's done with Bond as well. I, I'm probably just touching the surface here, uh, but he's uh, worked on introductions for three of the original James Bond novels for Penguin Random House, for Casino Royale, Live and Let Die, and Goldfinger. He's also a member of the Ian Fleming Foundation. Interestingly, this is a good fact. Uh, I think you, I think you might like this one, Butler. His name is used in Raymond Benson's double shot as uh, an alias for um, 007. Ah, oh, very good. Which is quite cool, isn't it? Which I think was a surprise to him from what I read in an interview. And also another Bond thing here is that uh, in an interview he talks about how he'd love to create a documentary on the madness of Casino Royale, 1967, which is an interesting Interesting. To, we'll to, have to, to ask the conversations that. we'd have about that would be an amazing documentary. So it's definitely something I'd like to I'd like to ask him about. Um, but I've gone over all his, his Bond stuff there, but he does so much more than that as well. He's um, he, he's he's a president of a production company called Cloverland, which has produced loads and loads and loads of documentaries and short documentaries and films since 1999. If you look at his IMDb list, it's enormous, like the, the, the amount of stuff. And some of them are DVD things. Some of them are actual standalone documentaries, but they're phenomenal. And they range from like Hitchcock to all these different types of films, Spides and all stuff. But have a look at his IMDb and you'll see that there's just enormous amount of stuff that he's worked on on these things. And he's he screen wrote a civil rights drama. I don't know what this is. The Long Walk Home is starring Sissy Spacek and Whoopi Goldberg. Have you heard of that? No. No. Um, and um, he wrote and directed a documentary called You Belong to Me, Sex, Race and Murder in the South, which is about the murder of uh, Dr. Leroy Adams uh, by Ruby McCollum in 1952, um, which I haven't seen either, but um, well worth a look because I've been reading a little bit about that. Another interesting fact about him, he was production coordinator for the 2001 Academy Awards show, mm. which I thought was really interesting. Um, and then uh, he, in apparently in 2007, for the Spider-Man 2.1 DVD release, um, Cork and Bruce uh, Scavalli um, pulled together a Spidey Sense trivia track, which was uh, cl- closed captioning um, on the DVD, which meant you could like pop up with facts about the directors, the actors, and the comic mm. books and all that kind of stuff. So he's a big, he knows a lot about these films, really. But um, I think I I think I had that DVD and I, I I don't remember seeing that so wouldn't mind getting hold of that. Just to finish off, a really interesting thing to, to know about uh, Cork is that him and his ex-wife honeymooned at Goldeneye and uh, the Goldeneye's owner Chris Blackwell, uh, who's uh, who was also the location manager for Doctor No, waived the rental for the three-bedroom villa as a wedding present, according to Cork. Wow. Um, and he t- talks talks a bit about the experience and and what it was like to be there on, on his honeymoon and um, as you can imagine for a man who is safe to say a pretty big fan of Bond 
that has got to be a pretty amazing experience. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that's that's John Cork, and he's as you can see, he's done a lot of stuff to to Bond. He's um, I imagine that a lot of the information that we get might crop up and it might might come from um, from Cork's work. So yeah, hopefully we we'll get the chance to speak to him soon. But uh, that's John Cork. C is for Cossie, Caroline Cossie. We are cheating a little bit here because we normally do people by their character names on the James Bond A to Z, unless as an actor they've appeared in multiple um, Bond films. But Caroline doesn't really fall into either camp, so we're doing her on her own. Because her character, when she appeared in James Bond, for your eyes only, uh, she didn't. her character actually didn't have a name, uh, but Caroline herself has a fan- fascinating story. So we thought, why not include her in this episode? So Caroline Cossie was born in the 31st of August, 1954. She's a British model, actor and an a- activist. And as a model is known as Tula. So Cossie actually really only made a very small appearance in 1981's For Your Eyes Only. Um, this is uh, in the scene where uh, Roger Moore's James Bond is tracking Emile Locke and Bond finds himself near a pool filled with beautiful women. You know the scene well, shot in Corfu. And one of those women is Tula. And if you see the press shots from that location, then she features quite heavily in them. So after the film comes out, she is outed as a transgender person by the British tabloid The News of the World with a story with the headline James Bond's girl was a boy I mean dreadful dreadful business so let's backtrack a little bit so Caroline Cossey was born Barry Kenneth Cossey and was raised as a boy in a village in Norfolk and from her young from a young age uh, ba- young Barry's features appeared much more feminine than they were masculine uh, because they had a, c- a condition called Klinefelter's syndrome. Just to sort of simplify it, women have or females have two X chromosomes, men have an X and a Y chromosome, but someone with Klinefelter has an extra X chromosome. And, and actually, in, in Caroline's case, she had XXY. So, I'm um, sorry, XXXY. So it's even more pronounced. Mm. So, um, this is uh, an interview that Caroline did with Cosmo uh, many years later. She said, I couldn't identify with anything my brother was doing and I just felt better dressing up and playing with dolls with my sister. As years went on, I went through school getting picked on and bullied and I mostly survived by hiding away. So as she grew up, she realised that she needed, you know, she was a, a woman living in a man's body. She needed to transition. She moved to London and rather than waiting for the NHS to, to do it, she decided she was going to earn enough money to do it and, and get it paid for herself. So she said, during that waiting period, I got into theatre. While I was there, I met a choreographer who said I could make it as a showgirl. So I happily went along that path. I wasn't billed as a transgender or transsexual performer. I was just working as a woman and saving my money. So then she got this really good audition, but actually after they did some digging into her background, they basically said that she couldn't have the job. And yeah, it would have been too risky for her to get the job and be working as a man, working as a woman, even though technically she was still a man. So she said she was very disappointed, but she still moved to Paris anyway and got a job in another show and started saving up the money for her um, uh, surgery. So she had her, her breasts enlarged uh, she met a man, uh, moved to Kuwait, and then after that, she then moved to Rome, and then she started doing tr- some strip tease to pay for the surgery, and it's at that stage she then became a model. 
And then in 1974, she'd saved all of her money. She um, had her reassignment surgery in 1974 at Charing Cross. Um, and then after after that, her, Caroline's career took off. She was no longer a topless burlesque dancer. She became a really high, highly sought after glamour model and commercials uh, actor. Um, and obviously she's very distinctive, very tall, very distinctive features. Um, and she appeared in loads of different magazines, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, all sorts. And in 1978, she landed a role on the game show 321. Do you remember that? Ted Rogers, Dusty Bin. Dusty Bin, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Dusty Bin. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a massive high-profile gig for for her. But unfortunately, journalists started researching her and threatened to out her. And again, she had to drop out of the show and and, and basically had to convince the producers to release her from a contract. Um, so that she could avoid being outed. It's just dreadful business, really. Mm. Um, so after that, Tula then sort of maintained a bit of a lower profile, taking smaller assignments. But when she was offered the chance to audition for James Bond, she absolutely jumped at the, jumped at the chance because it was like her dream to appear in a James Bond film. And actually, as part of the promotion for, for that film, she appeared in, Plo- in Playboy magazine in 1981. So like I said, that scene was filmed in Corfu. Literally, she's on, on screen for seconds and she has no lines at all. And actually, she's not even listed in the film's credits. But then in 1982, News of the World published her story and that was it. Her, her life got turned upside down again. She wrote a book about her experiences. First off, autobiography is called I Am A Woman. Um, and she did it really just to take control of the of the narrative, get her life back in control of her, of her own, of, of herself, really. She said... There, I thought, I want, went all my hopes of leading a normal life. I was hounded by journalists everywhere I went, everywhere I went, and their lack of understanding, the kinds of ignorant questions they asked, made me determined to sell to tell my side of the story. Uh, and actually, she was hounded so much, she actually attempted suicide. And so, really, it was that stage, you know, that she she turned to her family to support her, and they really did. So, um, a, a dad, a brother, and a sister—they were all a mum and a dad brother and sister they were all there for her and she really then started to turn it around the press coverage intensified but actually it became quite sympathetic towards Caroline and um, she was able to return to modeling unfortunately she going back onto big films like James Bond kind of was a bit out of her reach at this stage but she did appear in music videos for Duran Duran's Rio and also mm. one for Power Station's Some Like It Hot she met a man, uh, an Italian man called Count Glauco Lassinio. Um, he proposed, and it was at that point that Caroline started to become an, um, a campaigner for um, transgender rights because she wasn't allowed to marry, obviously because her passport was was not allowed to be changed. So it was actually a seven-year fight that she went through, to, and um, it was taken to the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and actually, the the court case outlasted her relationship with the Italian uh, count, and was never was able to marry him. So, she met another man later on, another businessman, a guy called Elias Fatal. They got married, but unfortunately, the press broke the story again that she was transgender, and he hadn't told his parents, and they forced them to break up. So it was dreadful. They basically mm. went to on honeymoon came back after being summoned home and, and two days later got a phone call to say that he was divorcing her. So, horrible. Anyway, the story does have a good ending. In 1991, she became the first trans woman to pl- pose for Playboy. Obviously, she'd posed for Playboy before, but now she was an out 
um, uh, everyone knew that she was transgender and she published another book called My Story and actually in 1992 she married again a Canadian man called David Finch and they now live uh, in Atlanta, Georgia so 10 years later in 2005 the Gender Recognition Act came into force and it allowed people to change their legal gender so Caroline was a huge part of that and when you look into like transgender rights and um, people who've made a difference she she figures really heavily actually um, and probably the bond exposure you know was it, it probably helped the cause in a, in a way later on she told Cosmopolitan times have changed so much that it's amazing I knew over the years when they sit when I'd see shows with gay characters that one day there would be more visibility for trans people so there you go. She's written a number of books, uh, Tula, I Am Woman, My Story, and then another one which has collected the books uh, together under the name of Sexual Metamorphosis, and that was published in 2005. Incredible story. Yeah, amazing. Mm. And it, when you read into it, there was like almost uh, an urban myth that one of the Bond girls had been transgender. Yes, and it's yeah. only in recent years that people have been become more aware of her story. And um, It was always a bit of a footnote that you, you kind of saw on... You know, like a trivia site or something like that, wasn't it? Until, yeah. until recently. Yeah, a bit sad, really. But yeah, that's mm. um, that's Caroline Cossey. And um, yeah, interesting story. Very loosely connected to Bond. But um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. C is for Cracknell, Derek Cracknell. He was an assistant director and he was born in 1935 in London. So his career started. Now there is quite there's a lack of information about his life and and you know much of anything really. Uh, it's quite difficult to get hold of. So this would be one where I'm, I'm a shout out to all the listeners. If you've got any any further information, then please do uh, contact us on the socials or or email us and um, let us know. But fill us in. This, this is this is what I could I could gather. So basically, he's he's known for being Stanley Kubrick's assistant director on 2001: The Space Odyssey and A Clockwork Orange. So that that's how he started. That's how he started his career. What a start to his career! I mean, um, but it makes it even more incredible. There's not really anything about him. Um, it's hard to get any information about him. And he went on to work on three Bond films. So that's why he's in this this A to Z. He worked on Diamonds Are Forever, who's the assistant director. Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun. So Diamonds Are Forever and Live and Let Die are directed by Guy Hamilton. Is Man with the Golden Gun directed by Guy Hamilton as well? I think it is. Um, but I did find a quote about Roger Moore, at least, uh, by, Roger, oh, by, yeah. by Roger Moore, because Roger's usually got something to say, hasn't he? So I thought he'd have a nice little anecdote. And this was on um, Live and Let Die. And he says, Harry Saltzman brought a group of friends to show around the guy's making it and he t- was treating it was like, like his own private sideshow and he was like oh these are just my puppets over there the red light went up meaning silence and the bell sounded but harry took no notice and he carried on talking loudly quiet on the set shouted derek Cra- derek cracknell everybody and that includes you mr saltzman sir derek <laughs> derek was a brave man um so i what I have found out about him, I have got a, a, a bit of a flavour of that seems to be the nature of the guy, you know, very forthright um, and, and just wants to get on with, with the job, really. So after after he'd done the Bond films, he 
He was assistant director on The Mirror Cracked, which I think we talked about in the Pierce Brosnan episode. Uh, that is also directed by Guy Hamilton. It stars Charles Gray and a small part of Pierce Brosnan. So there's a nice little uh, lot of crossover going on there. He was assistant director on Krull. Oh, what a film. Which Chris Corbold actually worked on as well with Derek Meddings. So, again, some nice bit of crossover there. I'll tell you what, though. I don't remember the effects on Krull being that good. So. <laughs> <laughs> what about the assistant direction? Fantastic. Absolutely <laughs> top notch. Um, Santa Claus the movie, 1985. Mm-hmm. Uh, Life Force, again, which Chris Corbold worked on. So... More, more crossover. That's to do with them being at Pinewood and working with Derek Meddings. Um, but the, the the biggest story, probably the most famous story uh, about Cracknell is on the set of Aliens. He was the uh, first AD, first assistant director. And it was James Cameron's first, uh, it was a directorial debut. And it, it was spinning out of control. Um, and there were tensions all around. There's a bit of a culture clash on the set of it because it was being shot in England with uh, British crews and James Cameron's American. He brought a few American people on board and they weren't necessarily used to the way that the the English were working. The culture was completely different at, at that time. But the main bit of friction was Derek Cracknell. It all sort of came to a head and... Cracknell felt he was better qualified than James Cameron to direct the film. Um, <laughs> so this is James Cameron's wife. Uh, she she recalls this. James would ask him to set up a shot one way and Derek would say, oh, no, 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 I know what you want. And then he'd do it wrong and the whole set would have to be broken down. Cracknell was seriously undermining Cameron's authority. So the problems mm. problems were all piling up and it was getting worse. Um, and eventually they, they had to get rid of him. Um, Who, Cracknell? Cracknell, yeah, that's wow, him. yeah, because he was, yeah, he was basically gonna uh, getting them to down tools and and stop working. So in the middle of the shooting day, he got them to stop working, and they were protesting. So Cameron was in a really diff- difficult situation. They couldn't do anything because the, all the all the other crew that were in England were busy, and James Cameron wanted to stop shooting in England and and go over to America and finish it they prevailed they got rid of Cracknell and it turned it round and uh, yeah I think it's one of your favourite films isn't it uh, Butler yeah definitely yeah. Um, I've got to correct you though James Cameron directed Piranha and also The Terminator before he directed Aliens right not his directorial debut but it would be his first film that he shot in the UK that's Piranha. that's what it is yeah yeah Piranha yeah. 2 The Spawning mm. that was his directorial yeah. debut um but yeah, it's it's funny when you talk about that that clash between the British crews and the American filmmakers. It's very like reminiscent of when you hear the stories about Star Wars as well, like George Lucas clashing with the mm-hmm. British crew about their tea breaks and their yeah, starting finished by and, five. Yeah. yeah, and you can really yeah. see James Cameron, a hot headed young like American filmmaker, thought he knew everything, yeah, and just clashing with these old school British like craftspeople. Mm-hmm. Um, and even you can just tell him him telling Harry to shut up on set. You can tell he's just a guy that just is there to do his job and doesn't yeah. suffer fools gladly. So that's, yeah. that's quite funny. Nice and especially at, at this point as well, you know, when he's he's worked with Kubrick, hasn't he? You know, he's, yeah. He he would think he's he could do it better, but do a better job. But he never actually went on to direct 
He was also always assistant director, so despite thinking he could he could do it, but um, he was apparently very hands on anyway. So a lot of the time, Guy Hamilton would sort of be sitting in his chair, and the work would be being done by Cracknell. Um, right. Uh, assistant director on Batman in 1989. So this has turned into the Batman podcast, hasn't it? Really. Um, <laughs> and then finally, 1991, he did King Ralph, which I've not seen. Uh, oh, I love um, King Ralph. Fantastic. Love yeah, it. Well, he, he was assistant yeah. director on that. I, King Ralph's got you written all over it. I reckon you should watch that this weekend. Yeah. That I is 100% it, yeah. a Brendan Duffy film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> John, Go- uh, John Goodman. Do you know the premise? No. So John Goodman basically is um, he's something like 34th in line to the throne because he's the cousin, the Queen's 25th cousin or something. And the royal family have this photo taken but as they're having this big family photo taken they get struck by lightning Uh, basically wiping out the whole of the succession line and then king ralph who's like the american cousin he has to then step in and be the king of england yeah i mean it's far far far-fetched but it's like the kind of film kind of film you watch on your 10th birthday at the cinema yeah it uh, it absolutely does sound like a me film that yes that is a bit of me i'll i'll be i'll be searching that out so yeah, that was the last film that he he assistant direct he was assistant director on uh, because he he died in nineteen ninety one, sadly. But his legacy will be his daughter Sarah Cracknell, who is the lead singer of Saint Etienne. Which, uh, no way. Yeah. Wow. Butler knows who they are as well. There you ah. go. I, I I wasn't aware, but of, of who they were. But yeah, Wheatley was telling me he was listening to them earlier in the week. So. No way. Yeah. There's a isn't there a Saint Etienne song that's very Bond like? Did we have this conversation recently? I don't think it's Saint Etienne. Well, anyway, they're a great '90s sort of trip hop band, aren't they? Are they? Is that how you would describe them? I don't. I don't even know. I think trip hop's a little bit. Sounds a little bit too cool, right? I think they're probably a little bit more kind of Euro trancy, right? Okay. Well, anyway, that's great news. Poppy, fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, that's Derek Cracknell. Very very strong career, but we would uh, would like some more information about him, please. Crackers. C is for Cross. Tom Cross. Tom Tom Cross is, if you... Um, well, annoyingly, he's a person associated with Bond who we don't actually like know a lot about in terms of Bond because he's the editor on No Time to Die. So we haven't actually seen how good an editor he is in terms of Bond at the moment. He's had quite an interesting career. It's not a very long career in terms of the kind of big films that he's worked on. He edited No Time to Die... Uh, which none of us have seen yet, but by the time you listen to this podcast, you, we, it might already be out. So um, take that into consideration. Um, the uh, he worked on it with another editor, Elliot Graham, who was originally associated uh, when Danny Boyle was going to direct. I think he, I think Elliot Graham wor- has worked with Danny Boyle on some other things as well. So you can kind of see where the link is there. But um, uh, Tom Cross worked uh, with Elliot Graham on that and absolutely loved working with another editor on the project. Apparently, I listened to a podcast. Um, there's, there's there's not a lot of information on Tom Cross and his work on No Time to Die and Bond, but I did find a podcast which is the, by the Canadian Cinema Editors. I don't know if it's association something. Uh, it's Canadian Cinema Editors podcast basically, and he came on that and he talks about all of his films. And there's a very little bit where he talks about working on Bond, but he on No Time to Die, and he absolutely loved it. And he said he loved the fact that he had another editor to bounce things off of and and and, and try this stuff out. So 
that's that all sounds promising. Uh, but a little bit about his history. So he's an American television and film editor. He he's, he's not had a particularly long career um, in terms of the big things he's worked on, really. He began his career in 1997 as an assistant editor. Before then, he had struggled quite a bit to get into the industry. There was an interesting thing I read about him where he was an aspiring filmmaker for quite a long time. Uh, he says, it's a quote here, I ended up doing what a lot of aspiring filmmakers do in New York. You work in whatever genre you can. You take whatever job you can get. And so I worked in commercials. I worked in documentary. I worked in reality television. I worked in fashion videos. I worked in industrials. I cut TV promos, but I still long to work in feature films. And he apparently spent 20 years as an assistant editor until he finally got his big break. And that big break was the film Whiplash. And I know, uh, I think I've actually watched that with you, Butler. I seem to remember. But, but uh, Brendan, have you seen Whiplash? No. Fantastic film that came out in 2014 about, um, or basically drumming, mm. and it's it's he actually won the Academy Award for best editing in that film and a BAFTA award for best editing as well, as well as an Independent Spirit Award. I don't actually know what that award is. You might know. Yeah, they're quite award, but quite prestigious sort of um, indie indie film awards. Yeah, so he he's he won those three awards for Whiplash, and that that skyrocketed him and suddenly he was he was noticed and he talks about in interviews and things he says that was the point where things changed and he really started getting involved in some of these uh, uh, amazing projects that, that came after it um but just before i just talk about those um before then he did he worked on loads of stuff if you look at his imdb he has actually worked on a lot of projects not many that i've heard of in various roles so he's done um, crazy heart he he worked the series deadwood which i've never watched but yeah i know of it the switch uh, and we own the night, so all, all things that came up before before Whiplash. So as well as Whiplash, I, he also worked on sorry, La La Land. Just to interrupt but, before then, I just wanted to say I did. I I I think I listened to another podcast with him as well. I think what he did to get the break is he agreed to make the short with Damien Chazelle, the Whiplash short, because it was a short film before it was a feature film, and so he worked on that as ah, like okay. a favour to the director. And the favour was then repaid when it, they got commissioned to make a feature film. And so that's mm. basically how he crossed over from, you know, smaller uh, roles into the bigger role. He, Damien Chazelle, basically, um, you know, honoured his word and said, yeah, you can be the editor on the on the feature film. So that really gave him his, um, pushed him up, yeah. up, up into the into the A-Leagues. That's an amazing film, that. Really is fantastic, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's a brilliant film and it's beautifully edited. I think if, if you remember the way it's, I mean, it's all about, the drumming is the the base of the film. There's a lot of drumming in it, and the editing is almost in time with the the drumming. Yeah, it's rhythmic, it's, isn't it? Yeah. The drumming is so quick. The way that he edits it's so short and sharp. Um, I, 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 I as soon as I was reading about this, I, I was remembering shots from the film, and it is a fantastically pulled together and, and nicely edited film. So you can see why he won all those awards, um, which then led on later on to him doing his other big film, which was La La Land. Um, which he, again, won loads of awards for um, and also was Oscar and BAFTA nominated. Didn't win those for that, but obviously he's he's, he's in the big leagues now and he's doing a lot of cool stuff. Um, just a few of his other films that he's worked on um, in the past. So, And, and a lot of these I, I don't know of. You might know of you've, some of these. Any Day Now, which has... Uh, it's about a gay couple fighting... Uh, a biased legal system for custody of a, a mentally handicapped teenager. Quite, I think it did quite well. A lot, I, I went through the uh, um, uh, reviews of these and they all seem to be pretty highly rated. So I think he seems to pick his films of late quite well. Mm. The Driftless Area, a film with Anton Yelchin and uh, Zoe Deschanel. Hostiles, 
which is a film with Christian Bale and Rosamund Pike. Yes. Um, I haven't. S- yes. You've seen that? No, I'm aware of it though. Scott Cooper, I think, is the director on that one. Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, The Greatest Showman. Yes. Ah, that's an interesting one to know. Yeah. First Man. I hadn't heard of this one. Oh yeah, um, First Man. Yeah, that's Damien Chazelle yeah. as well. The Neil Armstrong movie. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, with Ryan Gosling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that now that was only 2018, and then the next the next big film is obviously um, No Time to Die. Um, chronological terms came just after First Man, but obviously not in release terms. Um, so yeah, so he's done quite a lot of stuff over the last few years. He's he's a pretty established uh, editor now, and obviously working on No Time to Die. That's probably it's uh, it's it's a sign that he's 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 pretty much made it. I, I, I what I like about it is that based on all of those things he's done, a lot of the decisions he's making, films he's made, he's a very indie style editor of a lot of that stuff, and I, I think that bodes well for No Time to Die. I think it's a, a good choice. It's not an action. He's definitely not an action um, orientated editor from from what we've seen from those from those films. So hopefully that's hope a sign that um, No Time to Die is going to have a little bit more depth to the editing and everything. Um, one thing he says about editing, so he talks a lot about editing, as you probably imagine. As an editor myself, to a very small extent, I found that stuff very interesting, reading about it um, and listening to his podcasts and all that kind of stuff where he's talking about how he edits and how he does all that sort of um, um, how he learns on the go and that kind of stuff Um, one thing he said about editing is uh, half of my job is to distill the purest most efficient and most artistic version of the director's vision it's about protecting great performances and making sure they are emotionally seamless Uh, and the other half of my job is to create a nurturing environment where the director can feel free to bounce ideas around and try things we also have to navigate the creative waters between the director, the movie studio and the producers while trying to keep the process moving forward. Editors have to work as diplomats, which I thought was quite interesting because I'd never really... I, I always generally think of editors as being back office people who sit and just get all the stuff at the end. But in a lot of this, his interviews and, and, and stuff he does, he talks about it's not like that. He works very closely with the director and it, the visions that they work together to create that vision and, uh, and make sure that it can be done so that it's not just uh, a, a, an afterthought in, in the process. Um, but yeah, he's a really interesting guy. And if, you, if you're if you into editing, listen to some of the podcasts because he goes into so much depth. Some of them are like really long and he just explains exactly how he does it and where he's got all his um, kind of inspiration from to do it. But yeah, uh, that's uh, Tom Cross. And hopefully he's going to do a good job on No Time to Die. Yeah, it's yeah. certainly given me more hope. Yeah, yeah. And working with another editor, I don't think there's anything to worry about there. We talked about it in other episodes before where on the new, more modern Bond films, they bring in two editors because there's such a tight turnaround for these films. And um, yeah. I mean, little did they know they would have to wait a year to release the film. But um, <laughs> I think maybe if they'd known that, yeah. they might have given someone a bit more time to edit it. But um, mm. we shall wait yeah. and see it be coming out uh, in September, hopefully. So that's about it for this episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard. If you want to correct us on anything, obviously you can email us. Uh, what's the email address? Podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk And you can also find us on social media. We have a Facebook page and a Twitter account and a Instagram account all under the handle James Bond at James Bond A to Z. Um, I, I bungled at, that, didn't I? Yes, you did. At James Bond Data Z. <laughs> Sorry, that's because that's because you normally say it, Brendan. I don't know why I was steaming in there. Um, yeah, but, especially yes. if you've got any Derek Cracknell, fill us in. Um, but yeah, we really appreciate all the messages you guys have been sending us um, and hearing from everyone who's been listening to the show. It's great to look at the um, 
stats for the podcast and see people listening from all around the world it's um it's a, it's it's incredible it's uh, it's quite humbling but wherever you are if you've enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review on itunes uh five stars preferably but um uh, one star if you're disappointed with the lack of Derek Cracknell information. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and we shall return, hopefully, as teased, we might get to speak to John Cork. And then beyond that, what's coming up? Daniel Craig. Mr. Daniel Craig. The incumbent. The incumbent <laughs> Bond. I love that word, incumbent. It's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds almost unnecessary, doesn't it? It sounds a bit too much sometimes. It is a little bit too much, isn't it? Um, but yes, the man of five Bond films who has been the James Bond the longest, the longest serving James Bond ever. And yeah, I mean, we've done Casino Royale in detail, so it feels like we've been talking about him quite a lot recently, but it'd be good to dive into, you know, where he's come from and mm. just his, yeah, his his whole life and career. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah. I'm probably going probably gonna to revisit some of his pre-Bond films as well. Yes. It's been a while since I saw Layer Cake. Yeah, a lot of films I remember, for, Forgotten he's in, Road to Perdition as well, mm. Sam Mendes. Yeah. One of... Is Golden Compass pre-Bond? No, it's after Bond, I think it's it? mid-Bond, Bond. isn't it? I'm not, I'm not revisiting that. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Standalone podcast. <laughs> just, just that one with the bears, yeah. So, uh, yeah, James Bond uh, will return with the James Bond A to Z podcast next week. Our episodes come out every Thursday slash Friday. So uh, just keep an eye on your feeds there and subscribe and you'll and you'll get them. So, uh, yeah, till next time. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingemels. And artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.